Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Wow, guys, I'm here with Tim Rios. Tim's got a cool title, Chief Learning Officer with the Lipsy Company. We'll talk more about what the Lipsy Company is in a bit, but as I understand it, you began your career in 1995 with a local commercial real estate brokerage in Utah. Um, You focused on land sales? Yes. Initially? Cool. Cool. So then three years later, in 98, you pivoted to a national brokerage firm, Marcus and Millichap, very well known, but you pivoted um, from brokerage to research services. Yes, I did. And part of that was I did a couple of things that you never do in brokerage, which is I changed product types and I changed markets. And I just got the opportunity. It was wonderful, but I got the opportunity to join research for a short period of time, and it really gave me a good foundation in the marketplace. So yeah, that was a it was a good pivot, a happy accident. So which markets did you you went from Utah to where on that on that move? That move was to Phoenix. Okay, yeah, and began almost a decade down there. So you were with Marcus for eleven years, but you didn't just stick to research. We'll get more into your career arc here in a bit. Uh, you then went. And spent three years as a director of sales with a manufacturing company. Mm-hmm. Then you came back to Marcus and you were there for a total of 18 years, start to finish. Yeah. I really actually never left. It was kind of an interesting thing. And I don't know that it's real germane to the story, but I, I value that exposure to manufacturing. I think it really helped me understand industrial clients a lot better. My heart was always in real estate and I always kept that affiliation and, and knew that I was going to go back, but it's sort of a long story why I went there. All right. Maybe... Uh, the conversation will present itself. Who knows? We'll explore it a bit. But in your career, you've covered Phoenix, Tucson, Chicago, Des Moines, Omaha, Boise, Spokane, Las Vegas. Did I miss any geography where you had worked Those are within? the offices that I handled. So yeah. during during the, the course of my career at Marcus, I spent part of my time in executive management. So being broker of record, opening offices, taking over some established ones. So those are the offices where I had some managerial time, expertise, whatever. My brokerage career, I had the good fortune to be able to do investment deals in probably 12 different states. So there's a lot of geography in there from a track record standpoint, but those are the offices that I either opened or had responsibility for for a period of time. Got it. Uh, You and I came to meet uh, earlier this year. Um, at MDL Group, I, um, one of our core values is professionalism. And the way that is expressed for me is, uh, I remember, you know, as we were talking earlier about stuff from our childhood, I remember being a kid in Israel watching a billiards tournament on TV and the, the uh, announcer said, you know, that's the difference between a professional and an amateur. The professional will, cue, will uh, chalk their cue before making a mistake to avoid a mistake. <laughs> the amateur will chalk it after they make a mistake. Yeah. That always kind of stuck with me. And so for us, professionalism is that. It's constantly learning, constantly training, constantly refining because you are a professional. And to do that to in order to not make a mistake as opposed to doing that because you made a mistake. So 
Uh, Mike Lipsy is a very well-known name in the world of commercial real estate for 40-ish years. He, maybe more than 40 years, he has been a trainer and a consultant, a speaker. I first heard him, I think it was 2012 here in Las Vegas, and there's a specific change in my career that I took from that talk that I remember vividly that I point back to. Um, you came to work with the Lipsy Company. We'll talk about that. But MDL Group, we were looking for right, what's on the training docket this year, reached out to the Lipsy Company, and you made our engagement possible because at the Lipsy Company, you live in Utah. He lives mm-hmm. in Florida. You're closer in proximity to Las <laughs> Vegas. And yes. so we were able to work with you this year. You came in for four live sessions and then worked with, with our individual agents um, in between on calls and, and Zooms. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, been a good year. Yeah. So I'm going to push pause there. That's my intro of you in your own words. Tell us more about who you are and what you do. Oh, let's see. What can I add to what you've said? Because it's a pretty good highlight of the chronology. I think one thing that really characterizes my life in real estate is that I've never not known real estate. I grew up in a real estate family. My dad got into brokerage in the early 70s. And I just grew up around it for whatever reason that I, I couldn't really put my finger on, but I loved hanging out with my dad and his brokerage operations at the different projects he was working on. I grew up in Northern California, San Francisco Bay Area. My dad worked a swath of real estate from the Bay Area to the Oregon border, Klamath Falls. And I loved being on the road with my dad. And I would even... Oftentimes when he was working with clients, I wouldn't be that far away. And I can't tell you why I felt that affinity for what he did, but I did. The only difference for me was the nature of the type of real estate that my dad sold. He worked when other people weren't working. Nights, weekends. And I realized that I might, when I started my own family, I realized I might not be as lucky as my dad. I wanted to travel with my dad. Mm Mm-hmm. But a lot of kids are home doing their thing and nights and weekends. And and I thought, well, if I'm not that lucky, I realized that if I hadn't liked traveling with my dad, I probably wouldn't have known him that well because he was gone a lot. Mm. And so I set out to find a type of real estate. I knew I loved real estate, but that would allow me a little bit more of a normal family life. But it's always been real estate. My, my entire family, for as long as I can remember, in fact, my first job in a brokerage was stuffing mailers and licking the envelopes. You know, they, they, there was no self-adhesive back then, and I could still taste that disgusting glue in my mouth of ah, licking everything and stuffing <laughs> mailers for my dad. And that would have been, geez, I don't know, 1980. So it, it's just, it's always been my life, and it's been a great life too. So, so. You, you, you mentioned your family. I want to ask about your family, but before I go there, what kind of real estate was your dad selling that caused him to work nights and weekends? So it was land, but it wasn't commercial land. It was mostly recreational land, second homes, ranch properties, things like that. And so the nature of people buying that property is they go look at it when they're not working. Yeah. So that was land was, and that kind of owner is probably a nights and weekends when you're meeting with them. Absolutely. Cause it's for, for most of them, it's not their, it's not their primary endeavor. It's not their primary focus. So they do it in their Mm -hmm. off hours. So their off hours were my dad's primetime hours, as you and I have talked about primetime versus non-primetime on many occasions. Got it. All right. You brought up your family. Tell us about your family. Wow. Um, that's, uh, I could take up all the time. I, I'm a family guy. I love my family. Uh, we, my wife and I have a big, beautiful family. We have adult children. We have four adult children that are grown and, and gone. And uh, we still have four at home. 
So, and some people go, oh, okay, I get it. Utah, eight kids. I mean, not quite as direct a connection as you think there might that's, be. That's what I thought. But, <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. And it would be, it would be, of course, it would be a normal association of kind of a longish story, but it's, it's been wonderful. It, it, my dad, my mom and dad were all about family and so much culturally really on both sides, very family oriented cultures. And so that's always something that I've been, I've tried to strike a balance in my own career is remembering that, um, everybody has their own motivations. And so without judging anybody else's motivations for me, it's always been, can I create a life that's both fulfilling professionally, but also allows me to have the family life that I've wanted to. And I've been raising kids. I told my oldest son, by the time I'm done raising kids to 18, I will have been raising kids for 35 years. So it's a good thing I like it because I'm not going to be out of the business anytime soon. But uh, what we do, we split our time between Kaysville, Utah, which is about 25 minutes north of Salt Lake City. And then we also spend probably 30% of our time up in a place called Garden City, which is on the Utah-Idaho border on Bear Lake, a small family resort up there that we love to ski at. Um, skiing is the one thing that the entire family agrees on. You know, everybody has their own hobbies and things, but it's, I think it's nice when families have you know, that one thing that mm-hmm. they can unite around. And for us, that's skiing. So I need to understand this. You have four adult kids mm-hmm. out of the house and four kids in the house. Yes. And you're splitting time between two households. How does that if you don't mind, please, oh, elab- no, please no, elaborate because no. I'm it's curious. A great, it's a great question. Okay. So, so we are a blended family, which means we don't have all of our kids all of the time. So there are some times when uh, we don't, you know, we may only have one or two of them. And then on weekends, if the weekends that are completely free uh, for us, that just tends to be where we migrate up to. And then... <laughs> We've spent more time, this particular house, we actually bought right at the beginning of the pandemic. And so throughout the entire time that kids were schooling from home, we just would go up there. We might as well go somewhere where when you're done with your work, you can go off and ski, or if it's summertime, you can go play at the lake or whatever it is. It was just a fun location. So that splitting the time at that percentage honestly has a lot to do with the COVID-19 pandemic. We just had more flexibility. Got it. Okay. Last name Rios. Where does that come from? That well, technically, it comes from Orense and on the Spain Portugal border. But uh, for my family, it comes from Mexico. My, um, it's just, yeah, my great grandmother was born in Michoacan, which is a state, uh, for those who aren't familiar with the United States of Mexico, they have, I think, 36 states. So uh, she was born in Michoacan. My grandfather's family was from northern Mexico. My great grandmother was Yaqui Indian. And uh, my grandfather was just, you know, more, or my great grandfather, I should say, was more European descent. That side of the family came to this country. I, I don't know. It's 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 a kind of a funny. I think it's a funny story. I think it's a cute story. But um, my great grandfather and his brother were actually POWs of the Mexican American War. <laughs> they were brought to New Mexico, and uh, when they were released, <laughs> General Pershing, by the way, thank you, General Pershing, I guess, for bringing my family to the United States. Uh, when they got out, my my would have been my great uncle said to my great grandfather, don't go back to Mexico. You're just going to get in trouble. <laughs> so they stayed in, and uh, in New Mexico. And that kind of was the beginning of that portion of the family. Um, but I, I love it. I love Mexican culture, Mexican food. I'm equally proud of my mother's side of the family, which is Scottish. And that's probably why 
you know, not to <laughs> not to profile, but people don't immediately look at me and go, "Hey, that guy's Mexican, right?" <laughs> you know, that's that's not, why I asked. Where yeah, is Rio? That's from? not where where people get it. So if I came in with my with uh, Gibson or Buchanan or something, that would make a little bit more sense to people. But yeah, that's where it comes. Did from. Did you grow up speaking Spanish? Yes, I I did. My grandparents spoke it around us. the The reason why we didn't really treat it as a pure second language is my mother didn't speak Spanish. And so while she wasn't completely lost when people were speaking Spanish around her, it, it was a little exclusionary. But then I had the, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of travel and to really try to hone that skill, which was good towards the end of my grandmother's life as she was struggling with what we believe was Alzheimer's. Interestingly enough, the way that it can attack the brain, she actually lost English, but she didn't lose Spanish. So it was wonderful to be able to communicate with her. I mean, she could still speak a little bit of English, but Spanish was really where her mind was, Mm. what was left of it. And so it was was lovely to have that. And it's also lovely. I've had the opportunity to travel extensively in Latin America and so many different beautiful cultures and and you know we tend to say this latin america and it's it's right. it's such an umbrella term because the cultures are so dramatically different but all equally beautiful and having spanish as a second language has made traveling there so much more fun it's like in america it's like you meet somebody from west hollywood versus uh new orleans they're they're going to be different right but they're all american <laughs> right exactly Let's go back to the Lipsy company. Tell everyone who is Mike Lipsy. How did you meet Mike Lipsy? How did you come to work with the Lipsy company? Well, if you know Mike, you know Mike. You know that he is a force of nature. I mean, he really is. The The quick version of Mike Lipsy was he had a brokerage in uh, New Orleans. So he's a Louisiana boy, born and raised in Lake Charles, Louisiana, which most people wouldn't know, but I think it's probably midway through New Orleans to Houston, but right on the Gulf Coast. But he opened up his brokerage, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in New Orleans. And he had a property management where they, at one point they had, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,000 units under management. And the a company who now we know is CBRE, at that time it was probably still CB Commercial, they were looking for a presence in that area. They looked around for a company to buy. And they wanted to create an immediate impact on the management side. And Mike was the independent to buy. So they bought Mike in 1981. And he stayed there until 1984, at which point he launched full-time into what we now know as the Lipsy Company. And he has been on the road 200 days a year plus since then. So he is just, if you know Mike, you know that he's the Energizer Bunny. And he's created something that... Certainly at the level that he's done it, he's he's never had a, a competitor. So he's he's a good guy. And I knew of him primarily by reputation, just because at Marcus and Millichap, the, the training was a little bit more insular in that we didn't tend to have a lot of people from the outside come and give training. We really tried to kind of harvest the expertise within, for better or for worse. I mean, I think there's pluses and minuses to any of those strategies. But a former colleague of mine... Uh, at Marcus Millichap, a gentleman by the name of Solomon Paretsky, who's in the C-suite at SVN now, we were talking and, and Solomon said, I think that you and Mike would be a good fit for each other. And so he made the more formal introduction to that. And it was interesting because... Be, be, be a yeah. fit in the sense of you're an executive at Marcus and here's an outside trainer that can come in and 
provide training for for your no the I was you oversee yeah great question so I was I was really looking for something new at that point primarily because the, my journey into what I do now was a real happy accident so I got a little bit tired of the executive management side of the business and decided to go back into production you have so much more I think direct control over your world when you do that and. What was a wonderful surprise to me at the time was a lot of former clients from the production days were glad to, to see me back in the field. And I started to get some assignments that weren't just transactional fee-based type of income. They were more consulting and training type of opportunities of organizations growing and come talk to our people and help them understand what you look for in a deal. And, and I was very open with my managers at Marcus of here's what the the a portion of my business that I'm starting to develop and they were okay with it until, you know, they weren't okay with it. And, and it was okay. It was amicable in the sense that if I'm going in a direction that you're not entirely comfortable with, that's fine. But I'm at a point in my career where I'm okay going down a road that looks fruitful to me. And that's when <clears throat> Solomon and I ended up talking again. And he said, well, if you're doing more of this training and consulting, I think you and Mike could potentially be a really good fit for each other. I see. So that was kind of how that got to that place. There was no, there was never an intention of, Hey, I want to go be a trainer or mm-hmm. I want to be a consultant. It was a, it was a fortuitous accident, but it was, that's all it was. And the relationship with Mike, it was interesting because now that I know Mike really well, my first interaction with him makes way more sense to me because <laughs> it didn't he sends me this quick email which if, if you ever communicate with mike via email it's, it's a lot of very short like here's a sentence and his his email was what's your fastball now i played baseball growing up so i'm thinking well i wasn't a pitcher but you know i obviously i didn't take it literally but i thought well, what does he mean well in my parlance that is you know what if, if you're going to train what's the thing that you feel like you're best at doing mm. And so I told him and, and then, what was it? Uh, so for me, it was private client brokerage. You know, it was that really under 20 million, but certainly under $10 million kind of brokerage. You put me in there. That's where I've spent my career. I'm super comfortable in that spot. And then he goes silent. Well, you know, cause we've had these conversations before. If you decide that somebody belongs in your, in your database, if, if you decide that somebody belongs in your universe, you need to set up a way to stay in that person's orbit. Now, I didn't know exactly what Mike would mean to me at the time, but being who I am, I put him in the rotation. So every month or so, hey, Mike, I just wrote an article on LinkedIn, thought you might like to see it. Hey, Mike, hope you're doing well, just did this or whatever, thought you'd be interested in this article. So months pass, and I get this contact from Mike out of the blue, and he says, you know, Tim, timing is everything. I have been doing this for a long time, and I recognize that I have fewer years in front of me than I do behind me. Now, Mike's in great health and his wonderful amount of energy, and we certainly hope that he's going to be around for a really long time doing what he's doing. But I think we can all appreciate when we have more years behind us than we do in front of us. And he said, you know, one day I can lock, turn off the light, lock the door, and call it good on the Lipsy company or someone could potentially take mm-hmm. what I've created and run with it. And that was really the genesis of our relationship. So long winded answer, but that's sort of how Mike and I decided to give this a try together. 
Cole. Uh, this show is called Takeaways, and it's about my takeaways from people who have influenced me. And in our, in our work together, you're certainly one of those people. But I want to ask you, what's been the single most influential thing or event in your life that shaped you the most? You know, you prepared me for that question beforehand. And I thought, wow, how does somebody answer that question? Because I, it, and so I'm going to take a couple of liberties with it. And hopefully that won't get me kicked off the show. <laughs> I do believe that it is, there are major occurrences at different life stages that I've had. And <clears throat> I would say that one of the most impactful experiences I had was, it's a long story, but when, when my youngest children, they're twin girls, when they were born, couple of different things. Number one, I was an, old, an older father by comparison to my, to my first child. <clears throat> but it was also circumstances were such at the time that I was really the trench parent, you know, up at night and really had to put a lot of things on hold for, for my career at the time. But it was an amazing experience to be a full-time trench parent. Now, I've never, had, I've never heard the term trench parent, helicopter, dad. I've been that. What's a <laughs> trench parent? It means you are down in the muck and the mire of, of parenting. It's everything. It's the midnight feedings. It's the, it's the diapers. It's the, and anybody who's parented young children, which I know you have, and parenting young children is a completely thankless job, right? There may come a time, even at my age now, I'm, I'm starting to appreciate my parents in ways that I had no ability to appreciate them early on. And, and when you're parenting young kids, you think, okay, when they're 30, they're going to get this, but they're not getting it now. And really, babies are very selfish, not because they're bad people, but just because they don't know anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's nothing in the first three years of life, if, if you have reasonable circumstances, there's nothing that tells you that this world doesn't revolve around you. Now, why do I say that was impactful? Sometimes in our careers, we have lots of things that feed our ego. Earnings, rankings, awards, trips, comments, you, know, you name it. And these things feed our ego. And they feed a sense of, hey, I'm pretty important. Some of which is real and some of which is a complete <laughs> falsehood. So mm. here I am, mid-career, you know, I've had a modicum of success and I got to give that up for a period of time. But it was the most wonderful reset ever because you just, you, it kind of puts you back in your place if that makes any kind of sense. And just, you do things because it's the right thing to do, not because you're necessarily getting something immediate for it. So I, you know, I don't know, it could go back to my youth and tell you of other things, but I think that one was profound in ways that I probably couldn't completely convey mm -hmm. to anyone that hasn't been through it. I've had two, well, more than two, but two that come to mind as you're talking. Um, first kid, son, I'm doing the late night feed. We had a nice routine. I'd come home, take the baby, wife would go to sleep, we'd get a good block of sleep. I'd be up till two in the morning or where, whenever that time was. Uh, she'd wake up, take over. I'd go to sleep, get a block of sleep, and that's how we managed through. But on one of those, I was sitting on the glider 
You know the glider. Oh, I know. You know the, you know the glider. <laughs> yep. you, you learn things that that exist in this world when you have kids. One of the things is like the importance of a glider. Yeah. So it's like a lazy boy chair, sort of, but it glides as you rock back and forth, which is critical for keeping the baby at a certain state or getting oh, them yeah. into a certain state. So I'm, I'm, and one of these late night feelings, lights are off, it's dark room, got the baby in the bottle, and it was one of those motions that wa- washed over me. It's like. You, you can't fuck this up. Right. And it was like in the peace of the, the peace, like the peacefulness of, of the, that hour of night where it was like, wow, that was, that was profound. The other one, and it happens like frequently, but it's like, I'm president of NAOP Southern Nevada this year. Me. 650 members that are, you know, every one of them is successful and I'm elected president. Wow. Every month at the NAOP breakfast, at least 200 people show up and are paying attention to what's being talked about. And I'm the person at the front of the room at the podium with the microphone and I do the thing and all that pretty important guy, Tim. Oh, I, you know, I mean, you have many leather bound books and your apartment (laughs) smells of rich mahogany. (laughs) Yeah. And then you come home and Ava could care less about any of that because it's time to do a dance party in the kitchen. And, well, now I'm doing a dance party in the kitchen. Yep. Yep. Because none of that matters. And it doesn't matter, frankly. And, and look, let's, let's be clear. I, I love achievement. And, and nobody gets into commercial real estate to be poor. Okay? It, it, let's just accept the fact that Good most point. of us want, we, we want a, a life that's a little bit extraordinary in that way. But I agree, and you said it so well, so eloquently, is that, and, and family is not, having kids isn't everybody's thing. But I, I think for us, it's something that, keeps us grounded. And I also think that staying grounded when you are up in front of those 200 people at NAOP, it may seem that they're not correlated, but you being a grounded human being and understanding what really makes you a better leader in that context as well. So I do think it matters. I do too. Um, Let's go back a bit. You talked about travel. Mm -hmm. You're a traveler. Ah, well, yeah, <laughs> I am um, part because it's it's part and parcel to what I do professionally. I also love the process of discovery. One thing that with travel in both personal and professional is I've realized that despite so much division and polarity in the world, uh, as human beings, there's so much more that makes us the same than makes us different. It's just easier to focus on the differences, but we're not better for it. But professionally, yeah, I think I've flown 750,000 miles in the last few years. This year, travel came back uh, in terms of the demand for on-site training, came back with a vengeance. Uh, I think this year alone, I'm 185,000 miles in the air. And luckily, my wife was able to come on a lot of those longer trips with us, and a combination of very understanding family uh, helped with the kids and some of the longer ones. But uh, we've circumnavigated the globe this year, and uh, we've done training in certainly all over North America, which has always been the mainstay. But uh, Europe, South Asia, East Asia, Australia—it's been wonderful. I think that when people have the ability to get out, and I'll tell you something interesting about from a commercial real estate standpoint. of how this business is done all over the world is exactly the same. The 5 to 10% differential can be very important, and it can be very critical to understanding differences in ownership types and things like that. But most of what we do 
doesn't change from one continent to the other. So I love these, and maybe we'll tease a few of these, um, more of these out. You know, 90% of the way we do this, it's all the same. You know, people are people, which is something that you have said. Human behavior is human behavior. Um, this morning in our in our training, you talked about, uh, hey, guys, hate to break it to you, but, uh, you know, brokers are, are brokers. Now, they're remarkable in, in a lot of ways. Maybe we'll talk about that. But at the end of the day, it's like we're all the same. Yeah. We're all the same. We say a lot of we say a lot of things, maybe to make ourselves feel good, but not necessarily because they're they're going to get results. Any thoughts on on those? Uh, well, <laughs> you know, so what I said to the brokers this morning was that we're just not as important as we think we are, and, and that is not. I don't say that disrespectfully. I don't say that to diminish what we do or the the difficulty or the importance of it. I say it because. Sometimes in in apportioning our time and the way that we approach our business, what we're chasing is a feeling of significance. And that is not necessarily directly correlated to what makes us productive or what really moves our business forward. So part of keeping your ego in check of, oh, I've got to answer that phone immediately when it calls. Yeah, I know I said I was supposed to be making my calls, but so-and-so is calling me. I mean, there may be They're somebody, calling me and I'm important. And, I, and I'm, I'm the important. only one. I have to take this call. I'm the only one that can... Possibly on yep. this on this earth, solve this problem and it has to be now. That kind of a thing. <laughs> the the apocalypse. Yeah. You heard me tell this story one time years ago. I had a closing and I was uh, not available. There was no cell signal. And when I got back into range, a bunch of voicemails popped up, and I started to listen to them in chronological order. And the first one was, you know, Hey Tim, it's Dwayne. You know, we're at the title company. This is not going to happen. Uh, everybody's ready to walk away. The deal's going to die. You got to call me ASAP. There's this progression of voicemails, Tim, where are you? And then pretty soon, well, we're working on some solutions, but still give us a call as you can. Long story short, the last call was, we're recorded. We should fund within 48 hours. Everything's okay. Call me when you get back. <laughs> now, had I been there, uh, super Mr. Important Tim would have been in the middle of that. And who would have, what would have happened? I mean, I don't know. Maybe I would have given up fee or something that I didn't need to do. But it was a wonderful example to me in real time of people solving problems that didn't really require my intervention. Now, I'm happy to intervene when time permits, but you have to be the master of your own priorities. You have to decide that this activity that I'm doing, and it could be spending time with your family out of cell signal range, is more important than the other things that are happening in the world right now. There are obvious exceptions, but I think we make too many exceptions, and it is because we are chasing this sense of significance, and I'm important. So yeah, let's um, let's we're going into the takeaways portion already, uh, but before we do, I want to really anchor into in in something. You know, we're using the term brokers, and when we say that when we say that it's a commercial real estate sales agent is what is what we're saying right um, to me I, I want to like really in real time tease and unpack this thought because I haven't like sat down to to write about this in a way where everything's organized so it's gonna come out I'm gonna throw up on the desk and you can <laughs> okay you know throw up also but when I think about people that choose this industry or however they got into it but people who are in this industry they're remarkable. They are remarkable people. Um, you know, they kill what you eat. So there's no salary. Uh, there's no um, 
comfort, security, none of that. You really are an entrepreneur within this, in this industry of commercial real estate. You have got to be an optimist. Like our job is to be an optimist for both sides of the table and bring, bring what is possible together and help. And along the way, we're helping to solve everyone's problem. And sometimes these are, you know, for them very significant in their life monetarily or emotionally or otherwise. You know, we get into this because we want to be our own boss and, and control our time. And the, the punchline is you're, you're going to work more for yourself or in this industry than you are if you go get a, a salaried gig, you know, eight to five. You said earlier today, you're, the, you're your own harshest critic, which is also true. Yeah. And But through all that, the people who are in this industry and are successful in this industry, despite all the jokes we can make about them, which we'll get into in a second also, <laughs> they are just remarkable people fill in any gaps uh, on, on my observation there. Oh yeah. I, I think they are. And one thing that I think is always important to point out is, is that every human being has a different set and combination of skills. And that doesn't make one group better than the other. It just makes them different. I do think that the set of skills that make for a successful broker are pretty remarkable they're not necessarily less rare than you know the person that can solve physics problems or chemistry problems or things like that, but they're not particularly common. They're also very paradoxical in that you and I just spent 15 minutes talking about you're not that important, keep your ego in check, mm-hmm. and yet all brokers have an overblown ego. We do. It's, it's, not, and I don't, it's not something that I try to train out of anybody. Because I've often said, if you don't have a little bit of an overblown sense of your own importance, the the clients and the prospects are going to beat it out of you in a very short period of time, and you're going to run away from this business. So you have to have what we might sometimes refer to as a thicker skin, or be a little obtuse, maybe a little egocentric. Those are all qualities that help you survive in, in a business that's very difficult you just have to keep it you have to keep an equilibrium you have to recognize when that's helping you be who you are and when it's holding you back i don't i'm not for the most part i don't necessarily believe in a binary concept of strengths and weaknesses i feel like any strength overplayed becomes a weakness and that's that's the balancing act for us but yes i do think that the skill set of people who can take that plunge into the unknown of eating what they kill, as you said, and not having that, that safety net, uh, that's not most of the world. So it is a fairly unique person. All right. And so you have been that person. You got into this industry as a broker. Mm-hmm. You went into, call it management. You got back into brokerage. Uh, now you're in, in um, training, consulting, and coaching. We'll talk. Right. We'll, unpack, we'll unpack that. So it, this is a fun conversation for me because you, you've seen both sides. Yeah, I got into management, so to speak, in 2010. Mm-hmm. So I was a transactional broker. I was I was that overblown guy. I'm super important, even though I was in the industry for a couple couple three years. Um, insecure, all the stuff that comes with it. And then I got into management, and now it's like, well, I need something from that overblown, insecure, remarkable <laughs> optimist, right? Which is, yeah, I I need them to behave a certain way so I get what I want and they get what they want. There's this interesting tension between brokerage and management, but you have done it. uh, You are doing it at a high level. You're doing it all all over the globe. It's really a fun conversation. So we'll we'll poke at some things here. Uh, And you said earlier, uh, trainer, consultant. 
And I remember when Mike Lipsy was here in 2012, he was very adamant. I am a trainer and I'm a consultant. I am not a coach. Mm-hmm. And now you came to the Lipsy company and are reintroducing coaching to the Lipsy company. But let's talk about what is a trainer, what is a consultant, and what is a coach? Okay. So it's an interesting distinction and I might play a little bit of semantics here. A, a trainer is someone who comes in and shows you the best practices. You have to decide what's applicable to you, how it fits into your business, what changes you might need to make to adapt it to your world. And when you go to a training setting, unless the training is specifically engineered towards brand new people or senior agents, there's a lot in there that's got to appeal to everybody. The choice is yours as an audience participant of what you're going to use and how you're going to use it. And I'm a big believer in training. Every year I train, but I also pay for it coming to me as well because I always want to keep my mind open to – I don't have a, a monopoly on the best ideas and I want to know where those things are coming from. A lot of training that I'll get from from outside our industry, I have to figure out how that fits into commercial real estate – into commercial real estate. If that's difficult or if somebody wants help with that, that's where consulting becomes a thing. Consulting is a little bit more short-term, at least in the way that we look at it, which is, all right, here's the best practices, let's say, for phone sales. Uh, Now let's talk about your business. All right, here's your core clientele. Here's what you do. Okay, so here's how I would modify that. Here's how I would track it and give you a, a real contextual framework of how you would implement that or suggestions for improvement. And while their consulting often includes some follow-up to see how it's going, it doesn't have a lot of real-time problem solving and that's where coaching comes in. So coaching is the, hi, I'm how did the last week go? How we really struggled with this? Well, talk to me. Why do you think you struggled with that? Okay, let's try to problem solve that. So it isn't that they're necessarily dealing with fundamentally different concepts. It's a matter of, how much do you want a partner in the implementation and the troubleshooting? And part of the reason why we have a good business, I talked earlier about circumnavigating the globe and I consider that a privilege. It would also, without having it you know, sound egotistical, I'd have to be pretty stupid to not travel the world and pick up a few things about how things are being done, what best practices are working for one versus other, what has led to success in one context that might be able to be applied somewhere else. And so part of the benefit of having the coach or the consultant is perspective. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that the person receiving that isn't incredibly intelligent, uh, gifted, smart. Clearly a broker who's making half a million dollars or a million dollars a year is doing more right than they're doing wrong. It's a question of could perspective in one of those three ways give them something to work off of. With only one exception, training when you're new shouldn't be optional. You need to, I think, I think you really need the training and coaching when you're, when you're first uh, getting started, which is difficult because both require an investment of some kind. And that's the time that you generally don't have any money. But, (laughs) you know, hopefully you can uh, affiliate with a group like MDL who believes in that professionalism and that training. You know, I would tell anybody who's new, if you're hanging your license with someplace because they have some awesome split or you can come and go as you please, you're absolutely focused on the wrong thing. And you have to be worried. 
when you're new, it's not about money as much as what are you becoming. And training is indispensable when you're new. It's not about money as much as what you're becoming. That's a good one. Hey, is that a, is that there, a, there you go. There's a nugget. Is there that a patented real right yeah, original? Little, you didn't see the little TM and superscript. After yeah, that? yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put that right now. TM, you know, I actually, I, I, the, the funny, I pause you quite a bit. I'm like, oh, say that one again. Say yeah. that one again. I don't know how much of those are like, uh, these are things that you have like cemented into yourself or how much of it is spontaneous. And it just came out in the moment. You're like, Oh damn, yeah. what did I say? Okay. Here's how I said it. But, uh, okay. So trainer, consultant coaching. It seems like there's two parties, obviously there there's the person doing the training consulting or the coaching, a person receiving it. And the difference is like the level of investment and commitment with each one trainer comes yeah. in, says, here's the stuff up to you to decide what to take away and implement consulting. It's like, well, I'm going to help you through this now mm-hmm. with, with a little bit more and, and coaching is I'm, I'm on the ride with you. Yeah. It's granularity, right? It's yeah. how deep in the trenches, a trench coach, right? See the trench comes oh. back into Apparently it's one of my favorite words. Who knew? I'm a trench coach. (laughs) So uh, my observation in becoming and mastery, it really is like, uh, I always go back to the image of Neo becoming Neo on the matrix. Like Mm -hmm. everything slows down and like he can see as the bullet flies across the room. And that to me is when you have, when you're locked in with a good trainer, consultant or coach like that's what happens it's we're we're gonna break this down uh one thing you said in one of our four presentations this year loyalty is layered Mm -hmm. so i'll give some context to this um in commercial real estate i'll just use the, the the example of the listing agreement a uh, client comes to me and says, I need to sell my building. I do a needs assessment, understand, you know, what's going on. Why do they want to, what are their goals? All this stuff. Great. Then it's, what is it worth? Here's what it's worth. Okay. How, how are you going to sell it? Here's how I'm going to sell it. Wonderful. I like you. Uh, we're going to go with you. Great. Sign my exclusive listing agreement. They sign it. I've got loyalty from them. They have loyalty for me, mm-hmm. presumably, but that's generally how right. it goes. Right. I know they are contractually loyal to me. <laughs> sure. And vice versa. Yeah. I now have a, I have a fiduciary obligation right. to perform for them. So there's a lot of other stuff that goes in there. I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but you said loyalty is layered. Nothing mm-hmm. like burns a broker's butt as much as they have got a client and we're working on an assignment together. And then I see that that client just listed a building with someone else. And it's like, what the heck? Yeah. Right. And brokers but have let's a remarkable, go into this loyalty yeah, okay. is layered thing because it was profound when you said it, and it helped me see the bullet flying across the room in slow motion. Yeah, uh, it's a funny one because you're right. Nothing burns more. Brokers have a unique ability, and not to be overly vulgar, but I I joke with brokers that the only people I know that could pee on a bush 20 years ago and still say that's my bush. Like it's just <laughs> once you've marked the territory, I left a voicemail for that guy in 1989. He's my client. It, we are, we have a remarkable capacity for planting our flag where it doesn't belong. But even in the relationships that we have, one thing that we have to step back is, do you truly have your client's best interests at heart? Or is it really about you? And the concept of loyalty being layered is really about your client's best interest. Think about the 
Think about a professional real estate syndicator, somebody who's out there raising money either to develop or to buy income properties, whatever their strategy is. They need the, the, the lifeblood of their business is opportunity, whether that's a piece of land or a multifamily building mm-hmm. or whatever it is. The opportunity in the, in the, in the expression of deal sourcing, right. they need to be out there to like, where's my opportunity coming from? I need to source the deal, so to speak, the acquisition, because that's how I make my money. Yeah. I mean, the core of it. Sorry. Exactly. Keep going. No, no, no. Good clarification. And, and the idea is there's a principle that, and I don't really, this may be something I coined. I don't know. I've just been saying it long enough that I guess I've made it mine, but one broker, no matter how good they are, cannot be all things to everyone. And if you recognize, mm-hmm. and I use that client as an example, if you if you look at them and say, all right, their lifeblood is opportunity. It may be the opportunities I bring them, but it may be opportunities that other people bring them. And if I truly care about them as a client, I shouldn't ask them to not work with somebody else and only work exclusive with me if I could not in turn promise you that you will always see everything through me, mm. which I don't think is a promise you could ever make. And and that's where if you have to look at the client and say, what is what really is in their best interest? Now, I would take issue if I brought you the opportunity and I leased up the opportunity and I also do sales and you gave the listing to somebody else, that I might have a difficulty I would have difficulty with, and I would, unless there's a better sales team out there. And now, now we go into that loyalty is layered thing again. Well, sure. And that is, we've also talked about that too, in that there is a very Darwinian aspect to our business of, Hey, who's the best for it. Right. And it, and if I'm looking at somebody who says your shopping center is worth 10 million and I really only think it's worth eight and you go out and get 10, then I wasn't the best person for that. And what, what I believe, and you and I have had this discussion before, one of the best practices that I believe is when you lose an opportunity, you need to, with, with respect and kindness towards that client, you need to understand why you lost it. Because that's something that you can control moving forward. If you lost it because somebody else was simply better than you that day, that's not on the client. That's on you. Yeah. So that, so it's just, it's recognizing there was, um, you have to recognize the inherent limits of a relationship. And if you expect more from it than is reasonable for the parties, then it, you're very self-centered. You're, you are not client focused. You are you focused. And I'm all for protecting our interests. It's why we do written agreements and things like that. But at some point it crosses over and becomes toxic. You know, today your talk was uh, titled Schedule Your Success. So I'm going to tie in this loyalty is layered and why it burns the butts of brokers when I don't have exclusive loyalty from a client. Um, with with your topic today, which was really about uh, our time. Again, we are, generally speaking, 1099. There's no salary. You know, if I show up to work or you know work from home in my pajamas, I'm not getting compensated unless I'm producing success for my clients. Um. And it's not uncommon, uh, it happens over the course of a career, that you work on an assignment, happened to me two weeks ago. I have a listing two years into it, from when they first said you have it, to Monday a couple weeks ago, when the buyer said, you know what, there's too many headwinds, we can't fight them anymore, we're walking away. And what you said this morning was, okay, when that happens, generally, uh, Seller still has their property. 
do the do the buyer has um in this case they lost a little bit of 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 their time and money but they're still there so their down payment yep. right and what 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 did the broker get when that happened go go through that if you don't mind and then we'll tie it back to this loyalty is later yeah so one thing i always say to brokers is you work for a living and I define working for a living. I don't define as how much money you make. I, I define it as if you monetize your time, you work for a living. You could bill a two thousand dollars an hour, but if you monetize your time, you still work for a living. Okay, what that means is that's your only investment in the deal. If you have, in the case of an investment deal, seller decides to walk away, they still own the property. I'm not saying it's a, not a bitter pill for them too, but they still own the property. The lender still has the big sack of money. The buyer still has the down payment. And so while everybody did lose something, only one person lost everything. And that was the broker because you can't take that time back and give it to something that does close. And that was the discussion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's another reason why they're remarkable, by the way. And it, this brings up two things in our industry. It's sometimes you have a client that says, you know, why does a broker make so much money? This is one of the reasons why. We walk away with nothing unless everyone is successful and got what they wanted from the deal. That's right. that's one of the reasons. You know, the other reason I, we have a client who's a doctor, and he said, um, um, "Patient comes in, and he told her in thirty seconds what was wrong." And she's like, "How am I possibly going to pay you what you're expecting me to pay you for thirty seconds?" And he goes, "You're not paying me for the thirty seconds. You're paying me for the thirty years of practice to tell you what's wrong with you in thirty seconds." Right. There's absolutely an element to that in brokerage. And then, so for me, the, you walk away with nothing as a broker when the deal blows up and the loyalty is layered. It's like, that's why it just kills <laughs> yeah, us. No, I, I, I'm not saying it should be a feel good. Yeah. I'm not saying everybody should walk away from this takeaways going, oh man, now I really feel good about that. But I'll, I'll do you, uh, using the doctor analogy, let's have a little fun with that, for example, because the only way it's analogous is if you were able to walk into a doctor and say, I'm not feeling well <laughs> and I'm not paying you unless I feel better. Yeah. Right. Or going that to your attorney happens. and say, I just got sued. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pay you unless, uh, whatever, I don't end up having damages or something. I mean, I know there's some lawyers that work on contingency and that's why they but get generally paid the they're bucks, per right? hour. The CPA right. is per hour. The doctor is by deductible. In. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mr. You know, Mr. Accountant or Ms. Accountant, if you don't save me X on taxes or, or reduce my life, then I'm not paying you. It doesn't work that way. We go in and say, <laughs> we only get paid for success. So yeah, it is pretty unique. Because brokers are remarkable. Uh, so your areas of innovation, you've got time management, which we talked a little bit about, private client brokerage, which you mentioned earlier, but we can open that up a little bit more to understand what that is and how it's different than other brokerage, new agent training, and broker management. Mm -hmm. Let's go through each of those four, and you can give me a takeaway or, take or two on each of those. Mm, okay. So let's go, let's go with... Uh, let me, I'll, I'll do the order. I'll throw you the okay. pitch and you can hit at it. Let's go with brokerage management. Mm. So what is that for you? And then give me a takeaway or two around it. One of the things that probably kept me up at night as a, as a manager of brokers is that despite the fact that companies can have a good reputation, and there are some clients that are dedicated to the nameplate on the door, the real asset of a brokerage uh, packs up its stuff and leaves every night. The people. The people, right. And a lot of businesses pay lip service to, you know, our people are our greatest asset. And, you know, that's why we 
dropped your 401k match and what, but I mean, it's really true in our business, right? This is, what do we have in a brokerage, but our people out there every day, making those relationships, trying to make the right calls, trying to add value to what our clients are doing. And so with broker, with, with brokerage management, I, it's, I try to help managers understand you need to create an environment that people want to come back to on a regular basis. And, but you have to be careful because I, I go back to the parenting analogy, kids need rules. And it's not because I'm a benevolent dictator, although I suppose I am, but it's because we need boundaries. We need to be, we need to uh, be taught. I, I, I don't really love the words right and wrong, but kids need boundaries. Kid without boundaries is just a train wreck. And a brokerage, if I choose to affiliate with a group, there needs to be, there need to be rules and rules. Sometimes you land on the wrong side of that rule. If, if, because brokers, and this is not, I don't want anybody like commenting afterwards being, Rios was such a jerk. He said, we're like kids, but, but I'm, I'm this way too. Like if, if you said, Hey Tim, you know, what do you, what do you want to do tonight? It's like, well, let's go, you know, drink some really good scotch whiskey and eat too much food and, you know, but if I do that every night, there's clearly repercussions. So a broker can say, well, you know, I want a bigger split and I want this and I want that and I want this. And, it, you know, honestly, sometimes it's just really like opening up a bag of Halloween candy and just saying, eat as much as you want. People will, will adapt really mm-hmm. well, but you have to be clear about your rules and you have to be consistent in their enforcement. It, otherwise, what I think a lot of what I would consider kind of amateur managers of brokers is they're constantly managing to the exceptions all over the place. And that is toxic to culture. So that would be my big takeaway there is just be clear and consistent. And I'll give that to my, my first manager at Mark Similichap guy who absolutely changed the course of my life, David Weta. Um, you didn't always like his enforcement, but you knew what it was going to be. If, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think everybody deep down knows everything is not always going to go their way, but what I don't want to see is it not going my way and then somebody else in a very similar situation getting what they want. That right yeah. there, I may not want to come back tomorrow. Yeah. No justice there. Right. All right, let's go to the other side of the spectrum. New agent training. Big takeaway there. I, we've already talked about the fact that it, it's indispensable for new people need to guide. You talked about the uniqueness of the skill set of a broker, and I'm 100% with you. It, ha, it does need guided focus, and that's the purpose of new agent training. But the takeaway, because I want to add something unique to this portion of it, new agent training is a two-way street. At every phase of somebody's training, there needs to be a deliverable from them. They drove the market. They photographed properties. They've researched, you know, 50 new properties per week. And you're the price for you staying in my training is you doing the things that I've asked of you. Otherwise, you're out. And that comes from somebody. I'm not a real, I'm not a, a real hard ass when it comes to that stuff. That's been difficult for me to implement over the years. But the truth is, it doesn't get better. If you're not coachable right now, if you can't follow these measurable steps, that is not going to improve with time. You are not a good wine or a fine (laughs) cheese or something like that. You ain't going to get better. 
So in new agent training, you find that these poor managers and these mentors, they, they sink six, 12, 18 months into somebody only to realize that, that they were absolutely barking up the wrong tree. And we've all made mistakes and people change their minds too. But from day one, it's got to be a two-way street. Measurable, deliverable, and if you're not doing it, you're out. I mean, get some, I suppose, measure of correctability in there of can we right this ship? Mm-hmm. But if that's what's happening week in and week out, no. So new agent training is a two-way street. So I get, I don't know, dozen, two dozen calls or emails a year. I want to get into commercial real estate. Um, it's, it's, it really resonates what you're saying on the whole two. First of all, it's like the, there was the old way of doing this. How do I get into real estate? You make that cold call or whatever. You know somebody mm-hmm. and it's like, great. Um, there's where you're going to sit. There's the phone. Grab the phone book. Good luck. Yeah. Deep end right? of the pool, yeah. right? <laughs> no investment either way. I mean, well, right. not true. I mean, there's still like some, but there's no, I'm not, I'm not going to spend any time with you. I'm not going to, uh, which is a cost, a huge mm-hmm. cost, which we talked about. Um, not going to give you any guidance. I'm not going to give you any tasks. You just, if it works out, it works out and I'll benefit because you'll bring deals in. And if it doesn't, oh, well, right. Uh, the new agent coming in that there's, there's always this like, why do you want to do this? Well, I want to make all this money. I want to have freedom of time. It's like, okay, let's talk about what the first three years are going to look like. You're going to get punched in the stomach. You're going to get kicked in the teeth. You're going to eat crap. I usually say the, the four letter word, but I'll keep it a little clean. I'm like, I don't think you should do this. And I try to talk them out. Of right. It. And if they understand what they're really getting themselves into, and all the other stuff exists with them. Like I have to believe that they are coachable. I have to, I have to personally want them to succeed because I know they're going to come in my office and they're going to ask me questions that make me want to pull my hair out. <laughs> mm-hmm. But if I'm bought in and they're bought in, magic's going to happen. So the two way street thing is, uh, well, I agree. Now I, I believe that you understand your job, which is to talk them out of it because everybody, <laughs> everybody on the surface can see why this is a cool industry. Oh, to it's be glamorous. In. It's lovely. Right. You make all this but money. What, so what, this is what I used to say to people to add on to that. I would say you need to be super clear about why this is your answer in life, because I'm going to promise you one thing somewhere between month six and month 18, you are going to be in a very dark place. And some version of this conversation is going to happen in your mind. This is the stupidest thing I've ever done. Why did I think this was going to be my road? Why did it? Why, why, why? You will never work harder for what feels like less return. And psychologically, that is a moment that breaks a lot of people. So I'm preparing you now for the fact that that's going to happen to you. And when that happens, you need to know why you did this. It's, it's, what's, it's the yeah. only thing that's going to get you through that moment. I remember exactly where I was sitting when that went through my head. <laughs> when you decided you were the stupidest man alive. I was alive. like, is this? Uh, I remember. I remember this. The way I was sitting, where I was sitting, the direction I was facing. I remember it very, very clearly. Right. I know. We've all had it. But I persevered. And so, yeah. So we had it. You had it. And then you got into private client brokerage. Yeah. What is that? Well, um, it, to me, there's actually three subdivisions within private client brokerage. And when I say that, I'm much more specifically referring to what I call the individual owners, but most people in this business call the mom and pops. Now, I think that pe- anybody who can develop a seven-figure-plus net worth in real estate deserves a better moniker than mom and pop. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, it's what we've called them for generations. 
the, the two other divisions in private client brokerage are people that I consider the professionals. And these are people typically that use other people's money, but they operate in a much more institutional fashion because while they're not public companies, they, they operate more like a business and real estate is what they do. And the third division in private client for me are the legacy owners. These are the, and I hear this everywhere I go. Oh, Tim, look, yeah, I get it. You know, you're born, raised San Francisco, Chicago, you know, open office in Chicago, big city brokerage. Here in our town, real estate's done different. Most of the real estate's owned by these six families. Look, those six families exist in every town. <laughs> and they're the legacy owners. They're the collectors of real estate. They're the ones that, they're very philanthropic. They're very well known in the community. And so there's this perception that they own everything. But really, from a pure percentage of stock, they're a big owner, but they're not, they don't own the majority of stuff. So I specifically, when, when I said that to you, I'm thinking of the mom and pops. And the big takeaway there is, is that you're dealing with people, and people are messy. Most people in that strata, unless something has changed in their life, when you call them on the phone, let's say it's a sale, the answer is, we're never selling. Well, that's probably not true. <laughs> and that's not because they're that's not because they're lying to you. Let me be clear. In their mind, that's true. At that point in time. At that point in time. Yeah. But something's gonna happen. And so the real key in private client brokerage is how do I stay in this orbit of this person without making a pest of myself so that when that change comes, and this is you know that I I, I try to give credit where credit is due. This is a Michael Ipsy sign, but am I top of mind and easy to find? And I told you the story of the widow that called me mm -hmm. because all of my flyers and my offering memorandum and everything were in her, her deceased husband's files. And so she figured he was somebody I trusted. She had heard my name. And so she called me. Um, a very wonderful compliment to be, to be paid. And, and, you know, may he rest in peace. But they didn't think they needed me. And they didn't until something changed. So what's the takeaway there? The takeaway there is that if that's the kind of brokerage you're involved in, your outreach, your prospecting has to be, and you've heard me say this many times, it's got to be about the give and not the ask. Mm -hmm. It's not, hi, I'm Tim Rios with MDL Group. You know, want to know what your plans are for the next 12 months. Are you looking to buy? Are you looking to sell? That's a very transaction, very broker-centric kind of call. If I call because I'm trying to keep you informed about what's happening in the marketplace, in your product type, in the sub-market, with new construction, with legislation then the call is about the give. And if there's an ask there to be had, it's, it's not the hardest thing in the world to transition to it. But that's not where the call starts. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the big key with, with private clients is you have to understand that most of them, they don't like you, they don't trust you, they don't think they need you. But someday they will. And when that happens, <laughs> is your name going to come to their mind? There's so much in that one too. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to get into this industry and I'm going to call on these people that don't like me, don't trust me, don't think they need me. And I'm going to keep do doing that until <laughs> right. some, something gives. Right. You've got to, Who wouldn't want to be involved in yeah, this Yeah, this sounds great. There's something else that you said uh, that, that brought something else to mind. You know, people are messy. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've had this conversation where someone says, I'm thinking about getting into real estate or I have been in real estate, but I want to get into commercial because... Um, you know, residential is just too emotional. <laughs> yeah. You ever said hear that some, one? Said somebody who's never been in commercial. It's, it's, no. it's like what, it's, what they're saying is, uh, you know, when people are buying a house, 
generally that's the biggest thing that they've ever purchased. It is emotional. It's sure. very personal. It's where am I, you know, where's my, where are my kids going to go? Where am I going to raise my kid or whatever? I mean, it's very that. And sometimes it's like, how do you overcome the objection of, yeah, I know this hits all eight criteria that I told you that I wanted. I just don't feel right about it. Right. That's what they're saying as opposed to what they think in commercial, which is, you know, if the dollars make sense, we've got a deal, but right. It, how emotional is it? So let me ask you a question Heim, yeah. on this subject. Have you ever had a high net worth individual blow a deal, not for any good logical reason, but because they were pissed off and they could afford to blow it off? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'd rather have somebody say, look, we can, we can replace the shag carpeting, yeah. right? But for somebody who's 75 and has $20 million net worth in real estate, it's, they don't need it. We have and one so, now yeah. where like this, this party to a deal has something stuck in their head where it's like, why do you think that? And it, it honestly doesn't matter. That's the wrong question. Right. It's really, it's like, that's what, that's the behavior that's the bit of information that they are working off of and everything ripples from there. So I can either just keep, why do you, why do they think that it doesn't matter? That's what they believe. And I, I can literally lock horns with them and it's going mm-hmm. to come to, you know, uh, elevated voice levels yep. or just, okay, how do we just accept that and, and, and get yeah. everyone where they want to go, which is to, to, a so note to anybody listening to this, yeah. don't come to this business to avoid emotion because yeah, it's you're, emotional. You, you're jumping into the wrong pool. It's emotional. All right. Time management. Yes. Wow. Uh, you know me. <laughs> I get real soapboxy. All right. This, this. is uh, part one. We'll just finish and no, we'll start yeah, part two exactly. and go for yeah, another we'll 50, come back 50 next minutes. Week. We'll do takeaways <laughs> December. Uh, yeah. It's, um, I think in, in, we can appreciate this. The the older you get, the more you realize that um, time, there's nothing more important than time. A lot of people in this business have, uh, they've made money, they've lost money, they've had good years, they've had difficult years. You know, money is, I know it sounds so silly, and for somebody who's struggling out there right now, it, it probably sounds really flippant to say this, but you do the right things, making money is, isn't the hardest thing in the world to do time you never get back and investing time very purposefully. And that's in, including, it's not, it's not about being a slave to your work. Uh, it's investing it with, with family, with personal endeavors. You know, I, we've talked about, I, I, I wish I showed it more, but I love to cycle. You know, there's lots of things that I like to do. And so t- the purpose of time management is to, to be really clear about what's important to you, both professionally and personally, and making time for it. And then, of course, you and I talked about this earlier today, and that is one of the big mistakes that people tend to make with time management. So I suppose this is the biggest takeaway, is when people think about time management, and I use the air quotes because you're not really thinking about it the way you should, is they sit down on a, it's a quiet time, and they go, I'm going to plan out my week. But they're creating goals that they don't have a chance of meeting. Because in this vacuum, when the phone's not ringing off the hook or the, you know, the kids aren't around needing something or whatever, we tend to overestimate what we're capable of doing in a short period of time. Now, we do, as Tony Robbins said, grossly underestimate what we're able to achieve over the long haul. But there's this micro-level problem when it comes to time management where we're constantly trying to put 10 pounds of stuff in a five-pound bag. 
So the key is to is the sustainable planning. It's to set a goal to reinforce the psychology of achievement. Because if you consistently set goals that you don't meet, that is also self-reinforcing in very damaging ways, in ways that as a coach are super difficult to unwind if someone has ingrained that pattern. So even if it feels like sandbagging, start off a little small with time management, put some things in there that are important. As we talked about, they're important, but they're not urgent. Things that have m- meaningfulness over the long haul. And, and start small. You'd be amazed at what you can do over time. But we just tend to over-engineer. We tend to, we tend to think, like when we decide we're going to be in time management, that we're all of a sudden overnight going to become the master of our time, which is a complete fallacy. Yeah. Uh, so let's unpack time a bit. You use, you use a number in your presentations, 168. Correct. What is that? It's the number of hours in a week. Why do you use that? Because there's only one bucket of time. Everything, whether it's working out or or working with clients or a date with your spouse or significant other, it only comes from one bucket, no magical place to dip from. And the richest person in the world has the same 168 hours a week that you do. And so you, you take out, let's say eight hours of sleep a night plus or minus. So that's 56. So you're left with 112. Mm-hmm. Do you believe because we're talking a lot about brokerage and brokers. Brokers work 40 hours a week. Oh, heavens no. Well, what's l- realistic? Let me take that. Let me take that back. Um, 40 hours, you got 40 hours of prime time. And I know some that don't even work 40 because they've achieved at a level that they can sustain and they're happy. So they're working 25, 30 hours a week. But generally speaking, I would say most brokers give it a good, I would say 50 to maybe 60 a week. I would say on average. Probably. Yeah. Uh, so you're left like 60 hours. So you've got like 50, 60, let's say, um, for work. You're left with uh, 50, 60 for non-work. Mm-hmm. Is my math right? Yeah, I think you're bad. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Someone get a calculator. <laughs> I know, right. <clears throat> and you mentioned there's like, there's slivers of time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, so for the 50, 60 hours that I'm going to work, what am I going to work on? How am I going to work? What is, what is realistic for, you know, I know my industry. So it's like, there's in my day, there are things that I have to allocate time to, um, in the, in the book, uh, four disciplines of execution. They talk about this thing called the whirlwind, which you have to budget for that too. Yes. Uh, which people typically don't, you call it white space. Yeah. The white, white space and shock absorption. You know, we know that you're, there's going to things happen. And what's, what's interesting about shock absorption is it's over the long haul, it's actually predictable. You just don't know what it's going to be. But as a percentage of your prime time, it tends to be about the same. What is, is shock absorption the same as white space? Is it, are they different? They're interrelated you- concepts. The concept of white space means if I'm sitting there planning my calendar, say it's Friday afternoon, if my goals from a time perspective are filling up all eight of my prime time hours per day, I will miss on something. I'm planning to fail mm. because there is the whirlwind in in the vernacular of you know the other that other book or what to me what I would think of as shock absorption. There's just going to be a certain amount of your time that's going to be taken up by things that are important. I'm not talking about being distracted by trivial things, which is a separate issue. If when it comes to important things like that tenant that calls and says. I can go tour spaces on Wednesday morning and that's the only time that the CFO is available and we need to get her on site to be able to see it. That's important. Okay. I don't care 
pretty much almost anything else you had scheduled is going to get pushed. Well, if there isn't white space out there to absorb that shock into the schedule, one of the two goals gives. Mm. And that's where people tend to overestimate. They go, oh man, this is going to be a great week. I'm going to have lots of time on my hands and the kids are going to be away at summer camp. But no, it's not. It's going to get taken up by something. So give yourself a goal that fits in there. And achievement tends to be real self-reinforcing. Once you do it, you tend to figure out that you have capacity. I, there was a gentleman that I worked with. I think he's at CBRE now. His name's Kevin Asef. And Kevin used to always say to people, time is abundant. Time is abundant. And I, and, I, and I can't speak for Kevin, but I think the reason he used to say that is because if you tell yourself you don't have time, you're going to believe you don't have time. But if you tell yourself that, yes, I can sleep eight hours a night, which we live in a society that glorifies sleep deprivation, which is asinine. I think the conversation's going the other way, and I'm, I'm grateful about that. Well, I, I hope so anyway. Yeah, I mean, look, sleep, right? We're human beings. You can't get away from the fact the whole I'll sleep when I'm dead doesn't work because you'll just die sooner, right? So you got to get the rest, and then you got to put a meaningful amount into your work, but I don't know. I got eight kids, man. I've learned you got time for things. You really do. You really do. But if you, you believe you don't, it's, it's a lot. Of if kids. you believe you don't, <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other podcast and probably not yeah. for takeaways. But if you believe you have no time, your brain will make that true. I really believe yeah. there's a, there's a psychology to this that is so powerful. So powerful. Yeah. There's a lot in this one also that I'm, that I'm uh, more conscious and aware about now at 42 years old, I mean, growing up, you hear, you know, time is precious. You never really, not never. You don't say never. You don't say always. I never, right, Tim? I, I try never say never and never say always, That's right? That's a Tim takeaway. <laughs> uh, you, know, you, you sort of like grow up in life and the, people say time is precious, time is precious, time is precious. And now you'll say, like, wow, time is really precious, especially when you start breaking down. I only have 168 hours mm -hmm. to work with if I, or if I want to stay fit. Where's my exercise time? If I want to be a good family man, when is that time happening? If I want to be successful in my career, when is that time happening? And then each of those buckets, you can even break down further. And you start getting to these little, literally little slivers of time to move your achievements forward. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm becoming more aware of that. The other thing is, you know, you get running and gunning. And I actually tell new agents, uh, I give the analogy of, you get into this industry, it's like going to college. You meet with your counselor first day, and they say you're here for a period of time. Typically, it's four years, and here's how it's going to go. You're going to take core credits because you have to have those no matter what your degree is going to be in, and then you're going to take a bunch of electives. So try some things, all sorts of stuff, because you don't know when you're 18 years old, first time on a college campus, that you might happen to have a passion for, you know, pick your elective. But because you're going to try some electives, eventually you're going to know what you like and more importantly, what you don't like. Mm -hmm. And then you get into like, you, you start getting into material from super high achievers and they start talking about saying no. What mm -hmm. are you saying no to? How do you say no? It's like, why is that so important to say no? And then you start realizing, well, if I'm saying yes, I literally just said no to something else. Right. Because time is finite. We were all taught about opportunity cost. Even in high school economics, you were taught about opportunity costs, but most of us fail to consider what opportunity costs really means. And, and that is the thing. I say to people, when you give an hour to something, you give it to that to the exclusion of anything else you could have given that hour to. And time is just such an incredible thing. And I, I'll just put this little spin on it. 
when you talk about as you progress throughout your life and now 42 years old and realizing the importance of time. And I'll put you on the spot here, but you've obviously proven some things about yourself in this business. You know how to do deals. You know how to build and run an office, support agents. If for some reason I could magically snap my fingers and take all your money away from you right now, whatever it is, is there any doubt in your mind that you couldn't go out and still keep a roof over your family's head and eventually make it all back? No, because you make it happen. Right. You just make it happen, right? But you can't ever get 32 to 42 back. Yeah. Right. There's nothing, you know, it, it, there, that's the difference is I think once you've established a skill set and you understand how this business works, and I'm sure this is true in a lot of other industries, they've just never done much else, is you, you start to realize what can and can't be replaced. Mm. So that's why I get so crazy passionate about it because it's the one thing I can't bank. Profound. I actually thought you were going to go in a different direction on on that thing. It's like I just like can, to keep you guessing. You, yeah, no, it was good. <laughs> that was good, and you did put me on the spot, and I uh, the answer came to my mind. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we talked a lot about a lot already. Uh, I'm going to do a couple of ending questions, sure. and in a way, I've already asked you these questions, but I'm going to ask them again and put you on the spot, and you can sure, answer with it. whatever first comes to mind. Okay, and then I know you have to get on a plane, so. Ending questions, plural. What advice would you give a new agent for the next year with the context of the uh, upward trajectory that we've enjoyed yeah. in the U.S. economy is now changing? And by the time this comes out, we're going to realize more what that means. So it's no longer straight up. It's now at least uh, the signals are things are going to go a little down. What advice would you give a new agent Ooh, for 2023? What a great question. Uh, and let me try to be as brief as I can about the answer, not because I'm in a rush to get out, but just because I don't want to, I don't want to uh, be too convoluted. Number one, when you're brand new, a down market doesn't have to affect you. And I know that a lot of people will say, well, uh, how does it not affect me with interest rates going up? You know, just this meteoric rise that we've had in the last few months. Well, it's because when you start from nothing, you got nowhere to go but up. If I, I do, I have clients that one, two, three, four million dollars net per year, and they will probably take a step backwards next year, many of them, because they are pretty masterful within their domain. And if the domain is shrinking, then it, it hits those top level mm. people. If I'm new and I'm just trying to make my first hundred grand, there's a hundred grand out there for you to make next year. So don't get too caught up in the fact that it's a downturn, which sounds so scary. Secondly, and I, this is one of my unshakable beliefs, the best brokers are born in down markets. A good market masks a tremendous amount of sloppiness. When you have to fight to survive, when when the headwinds, I have a client who loves to sail and um, in sailing, there's this concept they call tacking into the wind. It's, you know, it's great if you're trying to go north and the wind's blowing north, but if it's not, you have to do this thing called tacking. And right now we're tacking into the wind, but that requires a lot more skill. So what you learn as a broker right now to consummate a deal is going to make you so much better going forward. You need to double down on those activities. You heard me say this earlier today. You may work twice as hard for half as much as you would have in the up market. What's the alternative? Working half as hard and getting an eighth? I mean, I wouldn't choose that. 
So yes, you may work really, really hard over the next 12 months, but 30 minutes ago, whatever it was, one of the things we said was when you're new, don't focus as much on what you're making as what you are becoming. Mm-hmm. And you have an enormous opportunity in 2023 to come out with some genuine muscle that no one need ever take away from you. Now, that's what I would say to a new person right now. You gave me chills. <laughs> I want to start over. Um, what advice would you give a senior established agent? Same time period, same context. So I'm going to be very specific because there's a lot I would say to seniors. But one thing that I would tell them right now is that I tell people, uh, relationships are vulnerable. And if they weren't, you and I wouldn't be sitting here because somebody was dealing with our clients before we were. A question I've asked to people all over the world is how many of you are doing real estate deals with people who have never done a deal except with you? Now, I've been in rooms where no hands go up, but I've also been, the average is probably 10 or 15% of hands will go up and people will say, yeah, I've got a client who's never done a deal with anybody but me. I said, now keep your hand up if you derive 20% or more of your revenue from that client. And in the thousands of people I've asked that question of, only one hand has ever remained up at that point. And I said, that, my friends, is why I know relationships are vulnerable. Because if they weren't, you and I wouldn't be sitting here. So for the senior right now, take good care of your people. Understand who is under your wing, so to speak, and service them without an immediate regard necessarily to what it's putting in your pocket. Because when a market is going 150 miles an hour and people are making money hand over fist, nobody thinks about making significant changes because they don't have to. It's just too good. When things get tougher and we hit the pause button, that's when people start considering options because they have a moment to take a breath. So time to circle the wagon, seniors. Take really good care of your people service the heck out of them without regard necessarily to whether it's paying you. My father used to say, and you know, I recently got back from, did a memorial for my father down in Mexico. One of the things that my dad always taught me that has stuck with me my entire life is he said, Tim, put the service sign in front of the dollar sign and the dollars will take care of themselves. And that's my advice to seniors in 2023. And we're going to end on that note because I don't think you can do better than, ah, there you than go. your dad's advice. Leave it to Ron Rios. There he always knew how to put a bow on it. <laughs> Ron Rios, trademark. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for doing this. Hey, I had a wonderful time. I appreciate the invitation, and I hope your listeners, they get something out of it that they can use. I think they will. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways Podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please... Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.